everybody. Uh, this is Mike Burke. I'm a corporate partner with Arnold Gold and Gregory in the Washington, D.C. office, and I've been hosting these AGG Talks cross-border business podcasts since last year. Um, we haven't had a podcast episode released in a little bit. We took a Christmas break, uh, but we're coming back strong with my partner, Terry Simmons, who is the director of our international and immigration practice. And she's going to talk about an issue that is not in the least controversial or not in the least uh, uh, complex, but immigration issues related to companies expanding into the U.S. and some considerations that should be made and preparations that should be made by these companies. In addition to practicing at AGG, Terry's an adjunct professor of law at the University of Georgia Law School where unsurprisingly she focuses on immigration. Terry, great to have you. Thank you for your time today on this, but I don't think that I've done an adequate job introducing you because you're uh, one of the deans of the immigration practice in the U.S. So could, could you just give us a little bit more information about yourself? Well, believe it or not, I have now been practicing at Arnold Golden Gregory for over 32 years. And it's like everybody says, it just flies by. But I've certainly seen tremendous developments in the United States in the realm of international foreign direct investment, economic development, and all the global mobility issues in that time. I've also seen big developments at the University of Georgia School of Law. It's uh, one of the leading international uh, law schools with the Dean Russ Center for International and Comparative Law in the country. And we're seeing an awful lot of diversity come in to not only the state of Georgia, where I'm based, but all around, which is, is driving this area of global mobility and immigration. Yeah. And Atlanta is, you know, obviously a magnet for both German uh, investment. You can, you know, driving down to the airport, you see Porsche Drive and you see the Mercedes facility. Um, I just mentioned that you also co-chair our, our German practice group. You and I have worked together on German clients over the years, but it's uh, part and parcel, the immigration question is part and parcel of the general scaling question a lot of companies face when they look to expand into the U.S. You know, they face the question of, do we send somebody from the home office? Or do we hire somebody we may or may not know? Do we do both? Yeah, well, you know, as you were saying, we do do a substantial amount of business with the German-owned companies. Uh, a lot of people don't know that around 75% of German-owned companies are in the southeastern United States with quite a few headquarters being in, in Atlanta, but also a lot of headquarters being in Virginia and uh, other places with broadcasting being in Washington, D.C., where you sit. Yep. Uh, some of the VDR is one. It's like the CBS of Germany or something along those lines based right in Georgetown where they report to uh, Europe on all the developments in the United States. But at, at uh, Arnold Golden Gregory, we now have uh, 12 German speaking professionals on staff that support business and, and are certainly seeing a lot of growth in that area and also diversity of investment. Yeah, and there's just such an ease of investment between the U.S. and Germany. It's, you know, especially inbound into the U.S., we're not a typically or, or terribly difficult jurisdiction to invest in. And for German companies looking, I mean, we, we talked about the automotive manufacturers, but German companies of all kinds uh, looking to to set up in the U.S., the, the Southeast makes a huge amount of sense 
for at least a, you know the home office in the U.S., uh, if you will. Yeah, no matter whether it's Germany or Austria or Israel or South American companies, the one thing that that I hear every single day is that is that U.S. companies are looking for people who are highly skilled and have certain knowledge about manufacturing, production, yep. machine operations, engineering, broadcasting, renewable energy, batteries, all of these areas. Uh, we just, right now, business is going so fantastic right now. I think in, in a lot of the United States, the economy is good, that, that employers continue to create jobs and look for the best and the brightest to drive business and create even more jobs. And that's really what's driving our global mobility practice right now. Uh, you look around and uh, there aren't enough training programs. People need okay. certain engineering or people with proprietary information about machinery and systems in the United States. And so that's driving this global pull for, for the best and the brightest, let it say, from India or Europe or South America or other places to help support our business in the United States. So why don't we jump in? Earlier, I, I mentioned that, you know, we, we try to structure these as conversations. But, you know, when I've got a client coming in that wants to set up in the U.S., obviously immigration is either the first question or the second question. After you walk through, um, you know, structuring something in Delaware, for example, then the next question is, well, how, how do I get a visa? So starting with that point, I know that for a lot of, we'll call them new investors into the U.S., that sometimes mean something in the family of the e-visas. It does. And I will say whenever I start teaching a new class on immigration at the University of Georgia, it's always surprising to me because I throw out the question on the first class to the students and I say, so what, what do y'all know about immigration? Uh, would you assume that if a U.S. employer wants to employ somebody from another country, that we would have a way to do that? Would you assume that it wouldn't be that complex? <laughs> Right. You would assume it, but yeah. You would assume it. And almost always everybody raises their hand and says, yes, exactly. And when they think of immigration, they think of the controversial side, yep. which is discussed every single day on the media. And right now, that's the, of course, the crisis at, at our border and uh, other issues of asylum and uh, deportation and, and all of this. But what folks don't realize is that on the business side of immigration and global mobility, the United States has one of the strictest laws in the world, and it's category-based. And the companies either fit into the category, and the individuals who are applying for work authorization to work in the U.S. fit into the category, or not. Right. And a lot of times they don't fit. And a lot of times businesses are just completely shocked because they don't realize that it's tougher to file an application for a work authorization for an individual than it is to form a corporation itself. Right, right. And so it's, it's always an educational process for yep. business, you know, and letting them know what uh, uh, their business or the foreign nationals that they want to hire, which category they might fit into. Yeah, with regard to the formation, you can get that done, you know, in two days. The immigration process is much, much longer. 
it can take months and months and months, particularly, you know, depending on where you're at in the world and whether you need to apply for a particular visa classification at a U.S. consulate, it can take months and months and months. And so everybody has to learn to plan ahead, to budget, because yep. the filing fees can be extraordinary. The legal fees also are are there. And, and just, you know, pure qualification. Um, one of the, the fundamental lessons I tell to all the businesses that I represent is that please do not make an offer of employment before you've checked whether somebody might be qualified because right. very often I see a business wanting to hire a professional of extraordinary talent uh, to, to fill a particular role in the United States. And once we look at the case, we realize that we're not able to for some time. And so that's the, the, the talent is not in, in that specific area. It's something something else. And yeah, then you're queued up. Exactly. You mentioned planning ahead. I mean, obviously, you and I have talked a lot about this, that, that sort of mismatch between what I do on the corporate side and then the immigration side. And I mean, if you're advising, let's just call it a generic non-U.S. company, how much time would you recommend they budget, you know, in terms of this planning ahead? I mean, are we talking six, seven months? something longer, something shorter? It just depends on the company, the company's qualification, the nationality of the company, and the individuals that they want to hire. So for example, you threw out uh, a few minutes ago the Visa E. A lot of foreign-owned companies are qualified for e-visa processing by virtue of being a nationality that's entered into a, a trade agreement or an investment agreement with the United States. That's not all the countries around the world, but it's a lot of countries yeah. around the world. And for example, let's just take a business in Germany which is German-owned. So as you trace the business all the way top to the top of the ownership chain, you determine that the business is German-owned. And the business is then investing in the United States and either creating jobs for U.S. citizens or engaging in substantial trade with the United States. That business can apply for what's called an e-registration at the U.S. consulate in Frankfurt. And professionals of German nationality who have important skill sets who are required to work in the United States can apply for an e-visa also at the U.S. consulate in Frankfurt, authorizing them to work in the United States for up to five years. So this is a wonderful vehicle for purposes of application. But then you ask, well, what about the timing? So if it's a new company that's not registered in Frankfurt yet, right now processing is taking around five to six months. And so the business would have to really plan ahead to be able to send, let's say, a new CEO to the U.S. or a new director of production. On the other hand, if we were talking about a company based in London who was also investing in the United States, uh, creating jobs here, engaging in substantial trade, processing right now is around two to three months. If the company were Austrian, on the other hand, processing is one week. So it really, each and every case is very different. You can't generalize about anything. And then everything is constantly changing depending on what's going on in the world and how backlogged the, 
various government bodies are that are adjudicating these applications. So very hard to generalize. That's why in each and every case, we have to look at corporate nationality, nature of the investment, and qualifications of the people who are wanting to work in the United States. And so it's it ends up being the ultimate, the nationality of the ultimate beneficial owner that drives which embassy or consulate you're going to look at. And so in your- That's in, exactly right, in the e-visa context. Yeah, and in your scenario, you know, let's say it's a German beneficial owner they're not going to be able to go to say the embassy in Copenhagen and try to, you know, squeeze in that way. Or like you said, Austria, look at, I can get this in a week, but you can't, you know, they're, they'll get bounced out of the process. Normally not. There's some exceptions for people who are actually resident in a particular area, but normally not. On the other hand, once a company is registered, whether in London or in Germany or in Austria or Switzerland or another place that has a treaty uh, with the United States, at that point, visa processing can go much more quickly if there are appointments available at the consulate. But again, you have to look at the consulate. So, for example, right now, we do an awful lot of work in Mexico. Why? Because there are very talented engineers in Mexico that are needed in the United States right now in the realm of manufacturing. Also, a lot of the electric uh, vehicles, electric batteries, other automotive parts are being manufactured in Mexico and places like Puebla, um, Querétaro, or other places. And so we do a lot of work in Mexico. Well, right now, for an engineer in Mexico applying for a visa to come work in the United States, in this case under the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, it can take three to five months just to get an appointment. So it's taking a long time for individual visa applications. Whereas in Germany or in Austria or Switzerland or in the UK right now to get an appointment at a U.S. consulate or the embassy, it's taking after a company is registered or if someone's qualifying for another type of visa, it may take two to three weeks. So you see the timing change. Varies, yeah. And I know this is, this comes from the regs, you know, substantial business. And I, I'm not using that phrase correctly, but as I've told you, I'm not, an, I'm not an immigration lawyer and I, I don't play one on TV. So as you're counseling these companies, what sort of range of investment would you think? I mean, and I know there's, the answer is going to be, it, it depends, but to sort of get into that substantial investment? Well, if you're looking at the e-visa category, which is for companies investing substantially in the U.S. and creating employment or trading substantially with the U.S., I mean, that is the first question always. Well, yeah. we're thinking to make a $100,000 investment. Will that count? The investment is always measured against the type of business. Yeah. So, for example, in Atlanta, we're very... Um, very happy that we have now two Christmas markets uh, yes. started and driven through our sister city in Nuremberg. And we've applied for an e-visa for a vendor for one of these Christmas markets to come over with e-visa status who invested, give or take, around $30,000 in a food truck and other inventory and, and all kinds of decorations for purposes of coming here and offering authentic Christmas food, let us say, from Germany. Yeah. And so that's a very small investment, as the case may be, but his investment was driving employment creation for U.S. citizens and permanent residents and then supporting a critical event in the yep. city of Atlanta. 
If you're starting a production facility, on the other hand, $35,000. Yeah, that's not going to Right. You're going to need a couple million, perhaps, because you're going to need the premises to manufacture. You'll need inventory, raw materials, machinery and systems. And so that's going to add up to a more substantial investment. But at the end of the day, with any immigration case, I always tell my students as well, you know, there's a law and then there's the argumentation. And we must be really creative in our lawyering when we argue qualification, because we always have to present a case through a business plan to uh, the U.S. government arguing why an investment of $100,000 should be sufficient for a management consulting firm, why an individual is going to be a critical person or professional to work in the United States, why that person is needed. And then we also have to always train the individuals when they make their individual applications because they need to be able in the English language to express why they're important to a particular company. I'm the most important person in this company. Exactly. Exactly. Somebody being maybe a bit more modest and saying, well, you know, the modesty does not help in that perspective. Never, never. And and there was even a time under the Trump administration, we had to go one step further. And there was typically a requirement that individuals had to present a case why an American could not do their yeah, job. Right. That's right. not part of the, the requirements right now under the Biden administration, but we could see it come back. And so it's very important how a case is presented to the government by us at AGG, but then it's also very important that we serve as trainers to all of our clients to work with them in the English language to present themselves in their cases to a particular government official when they're applying for a visa. Yeah, and it's a, and just to focus real quickly on the business plan, is a U.S. immigration-style business plan. This is not a, a, a deck that you would put out to investors or you would used to plan outside of the U.S. is very specific in terms of the points you wanted to to hit. Exactly. So we also work with the companies in connection with preparation of business plans and advice with regard to those business plans, because they do have to typically lay out for a period of five years what the company expects to invest, what the employment creation will look like, what the market looks like, what market research studies look like, why certain individuals are required to come from another country to support that business and to drive that growth and uh, what the market looks like as far as recruitment of U.S. citizens and permanent residents as well. Just real quickly on, you know, sort of the the applicant's CV. You know, obviously it's not going to be some random person working the line on a, on a factory that's going to sort of move the needle, kind of get at the approval under the E-regime. How qualified? I mean, obviously, it's it's going to be qualified relative to the job the person is going to perform in the United States. Obviously, there's going to be potential underqualification and maybe overqualification in other cases. How do you manage that? You really have to have experience in the area and understand which nationality you're working with and which consular representatives you're working with. And so, for example, you know, different consulates have different levels of scrutiny on any given application. 
Whereas in Austria, someone who completed apprenticeship and maybe around 21 years of age and working on technical machinery and, and equipment installation may qualify for an e-visa, that person might not qualify in the United Kingdom. And right. so we really have to look to the nationality, the interpretation of any consular officers who are there at a given time, and then at the CV. And at the end of the day, again, it just really comes down to the presentation of the case from the the way someone dresses when they go in to meet with the United States government to the way they express themselves, whether they can speak in English, that can be also a stumbling block. And so a lot of times, for example, with folks who are coming in from Germany, a lot of times when we do our training, we will tell them in German uh, what we would like them or how we would like them to express themselves. And then we'll repeat it in English so that they can hear it in both languages and better understand how to express themselves. But it's it's really about qualification and the e-visa category and the discretionary argumentation that we have to make. One other point you and I have dealt with one of our common clients is how much are you going to pay this person in the U.S.? Understanding that what might be considered a reasonable paycheck in Munich or Vienna may be quite low, you know, if you're going to move somebody to Atlanta or Dallas or something something like that. We deal with that all the time. We have to look at at compensation. Of course, we see those issues in Eastern Europe. We see them in South America uh, when they come into the United States because you're typically not going to qualify for a U.S. visa if you're not earning somewhere around the average wage for a particular area you're working in. So we look at that cross-section. We have to look at employment law issues as well because we have to educate our clients that when you're coming over on a visa, you're going to be treated like... Like Americans are treated, and this means uh, overtime pay for those yep. eligible. Exempt versus not exempt. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. is not always the case in in other countries, and so we have to look at that overlapping issue. You and I, of course, look at another overlapping issue on each and every visa petition. We have to certify whether somebody requires an export control license. That is a question. And so we have to analyze that before I can sign off on that petition and before the employer can sign off on the petition. Because in a lot of areas that you would never believe, in addition to a visa, if you're working with certain type of uh, equipment, you may need an export control license and you'll have to apply for that too. So there's a lot of goes into the global mobility realm of folks coming into the U.S. that isn't just about filing a particular visa application. It's about analyzing other areas of the law as well. well tax yeah. also comes tax into is, yeah, critical, yeah. critical area because a lot of times folks who might otherwise come here even without a working visa end up applying for the working visa because the, the companies are concerned about establishing a permanent establishment in the United States or the individuals will be here for a length of time where they'll have to pay some sort of tax withholding and we need a social security to do that. So there's also tax implications to the decisions on visa classification and qualification. Great. Well, Terry, we're up against our kind of self-imposed timeline. I I think what we can do here is maybe take a pause, not cut this conversation off, but, you know, tell our listeners that we're wrapped on on this particular episode, but the next episode we're going to record is going to continue this conversation on U.S. immigration issues. Terry, if listeners need to get in touch with you, how would they do so? Normally, just send me an email to Terry, T-E-R-I dot Simmons, S-I-M-M-O-N-S at A-G-G dot com. 
And I stay online very much of the time because when you work in this area, there is never a shutdown, let us say, because people are working all over the world coming to the United States. We're also supporting companies and going outside the United States and sending Americans to other countries around the world. And so we see both of these issues and uh, and we have a lot more to discuss. In particular, my one shout out right now is that we're starting to work on the H visa registrations for professionals because we must file the registrations in March to try to get one of the limited quota numbers for H professional visa classification when that's needed. So there is a critical timeline there. So for anyone who is looking to hire students, professionals, uh, or others in need an H visa, March is the time. So now is the time to reach out to us. That sounds great, Terry. Thank you. And folks, uh, again, my name is Mike Burke. I'm a corporate partner at AGG in the Washington, D.C. office, and I'd like to thank you for your time listening to our podcast today. And we'll be back soon.